If you ask someone in Michigan what the best-known missing persons case is, they will likely say it's the 1975 disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. Hoffa, the troubled former boss of the Teamsters Union, was supposed to have a 2 p.m. meeting on July 30, 1975. He was meeting with notorious alleged mafia guy, Anthony Giacalone, a.k.a. Tony Jack. At 2.30, Hoffa phoned his wife. He was annoyed that Tony Jack was late to the meeting and told her he'd be home by 4 o'clock to grill steaks for their dinner. Hoffa would never be seen alive again. And if you're interested in more about the life and crimes of Jimmy Hoffa, you should check out the fourth season of The Shattered Podcast, because they take a deep dive into the events and circumstances of Hoffa's life, his colorful career, and his mysterious disappearance and likely death on a summer afternoon in the Detroit suburbs. This week's episode of Already Gone focuses on another well-known disappearance from Michigan, the disappearance of Paige Renkowski. Paige was last seen in May of 1990, 30 years ago this month. Her disappearance happened 15 years after Hoffa's fateful meeting at a restaurant on Telegraph Road. But Paige wasn't famous. People didn't stop her on the street because they recognized her. So her case, it's not as well known. But I find her disappearance, the great mystery of her case, compelling. Baffling, really. This is another one of those cases where, if you told me that a UFO came and got her, levitating her out of her vehicle and into thin air, I would entertain the notion. Because Paige Renkowski disappeared completely. Like Hoffa, she was last seen in a busy place. Paige was last seen on the side of the interstate on a sunny afternoon. She vanished from what is literally a well-trafficked area in the middle of the day. And when she disappeared, she left behind her shoes and her purse. And listeners, there has never been a credible sighting of Paige since May 24, 1990. Her story has interested me for most of my adult life. Hers is a case I remember hearing about when I was in school. Hers is a mystery that I pondered and read about and find my mind drifting to, because I want to know what happened. Where is Paige? How does someone vanish so completely? Her case, her disappearance, it's been looked at by law enforcement agencies from Michigan and beyond. There have been tips and leads. They've brought men and women in for questioning. Different investigative teams have looked at the file and then looked at it again and we're left with very little. How does this happen? How does a 30-year-old woman vanish from the side of an interstate in the suburbs on a Thursday afternoon? So come with me to a spring day in 1990, when Paige Renkowski drops her mother off at the airport and drives her car into oblivion. May 24, 1990 was a decidedly nice spring day in Michigan. The high was 70 degrees, and the temperature, paired with sunshine, was a lovely start to a long weekend. On Thursday afternoon, they're wrapping up their work week and looking forward to the holiday weekend. Plenty of people loading up their cars to go up north, or pulling the tarp off the boat or the swimming pool. It was here, Memorial Day weekend, the unofficial start of summer. Paige's mother, Artis, was traveling. Two of her four daughters lived in Georgia, so she booked a flight to Atlanta and looked forward to spending quality time with her family. The Renkowski girls were the pride and joy of Carl and Artis, Tamara, Paige, Cheryl, and Michelle. 
With Tamara and Michelle living out of state, the long weekend brought a chance to visit and catch up. An artist was looking forward to it. The Renkowski girls were raised in Okemos, a suburb of Michigan's capital of Lansing. Artists worked for General Motors in an administrative position, and Carl, after serving in the military and working in law enforcement, he took a job with the state of Michigan. Artists and Carl both attended Michigan State University, and the entire family supported Michigan State University Spartan Athletics. Sounds like had you guys had a pretty typical upbringing. Your mom worked for one of the big three. Your dad had a law enforcement background, mm-hmm. grew up in the Okemos area, you know, kind yep. of a typical American family. Exactly. Yep. Two-story house, you know, playing in the neighborhood. Um, you know, everything was really pretty, pretty normal in terms of our upbringing, uh, location. We have friends still to this day you know, in our hometown and uh, that really keep in touch and follow the story quite closely. And where was Paige living at the time that she disappeared? You know, um, she had been back and forth, um, but between my mom's house temporarily and she was, but she was living with her fiance, Steve, at the time. As far as I recall, I had been living away for a few years. I lived in Atlanta for about seven years. Yeah, I wasn't part of her, you know, her social group and that kind of thing because I'd been away for a few years. That's Michelle Renkowski, Paige's younger sister. We'll be hearing from Michelle and her daughter, Nikki, throughout the episode. By 1990, the four Renkowski girls were adults, grown and flown, as you might say. Paige was the second of the four, and she was engaged to be married. She'd met her fiancé, Steve, at a Michigan State Spartans hockey game in 1987. Things were really coming together for Paige as she entered her 30s. When Paige graduated from high school in 1978, she wasn't sure what she wanted to do with her life. Sure, she did some modeling at local venues. She attended college off and on, and she worked as a substitute teacher. But nothing felt like the right fit for her. Eventually, Paige decided that she wanted to be a teacher. She wanted to work with young children, so she returned to school, earning a degree and hoping to land a job in her field. Paige graduated from Michigan State University with a major in early childhood education, and the schools that she worked at as a substitute while she sought full-time employment were wrapping up for the school year. On May 24, 1990, Paige was up and about with a purpose. That morning, she got up and dressed in a white blouse, colorful silk pants, and a beautiful beaded necklace. Her dark blonde hair swung freely around her face. Paige had plans to drive her mother, Artis, to Detroit Metropolitan Airport in Romulus. The airport is located just a few miles west of Detroit. The trip from their home in Okemos to the airport was about 82 miles, and since most of the trip was on the freeway, it should take them about 90 minutes. The route to the airport from Okemos was Interstate 96 to Interstate 275 to Interstate 94, which led them almost directly to the terminal. Artis Renkowski would later tell police that on the ride to the airport, her daughter was fine, acting normal. Paige spoke of her fiancé, Steve, having a softball game that afternoon. She told her mother she was looking forward to the game, and it was likely that a group of them would head out afterward for dinner and a beer. When they said their farewells at the airport, neither mother nor daughter knew that this was the last time they would be together. 
After dropping off her mother, Paige pulled away from the airport, but she wasn't headed straight home. She had plans to see a girlfriend who lived in Canton. Canton is located about 10 miles north and west of the airport. Paige arrived at her friend's home and they visited. And I think that her friend had a young child or young children, so they went to a local park so the adults could chat while the kids played. The group also stopped for ice cream. It was a good visit, two friends catching up. When Paige said her farewell, after all, she wanted to arrive back in Okamos in time for Steve's softball game that evening. Everything seemed normal, every day. During the visit, Paige had not done or said anything that concerned her friend. Before she got on the freeway, and Paige would have taken I-275 northbound to return to Okamos, she stopped at a local party store. Listeners, we've had this conversation about party stores before, but I wanted to mention again. In Michigan, a party store is a convenience store that sells beer, wine, and liquor. They also sell smokes, lottery tickets, candy, snacks, and pop. They might even sell some groceries. But party stores generally do not sell party supplies, despite being called party stores. So, Paige stops at this party store, and while she's there, she purchases a cold 40-ounce beer. As she's making the purchase, the female clerk admires the colorful beaded necklace Paige is wearing. Paige smiles and thanks her. The two chat very briefly, and then Paige is gone, returning to her car to continue the trip home. When news of Paige going missing reaches the Detroit area via newspaper and TV broadcast, this woman at the party store, Judy, she comes forward to share her interaction with Paige. The information she provides law enforcement will prove helpful to investigators as they retrace Paige's movements. If you've seen the picture of Paige, where she's smiling for the camera in a white top and a necklace, that is the outfit she was wearing the day she vanished. You can, quite literally, see what Paige looked like the day she disappeared. And if you aren't familiar with the photo, I've posted it on our website at www.alreadygonepodcast.com. Now, the car that Paige is driving, it's not her car. It belongs to her mother. And that's not quite right either, because the car, a silver 1986 Oldsmobile Cutlass Calais, this was her mother's work vehicle, so technically the car belonged to General Motors. Back inside of her car, Paige does something controversial. On that sunny Thursday afternoon, Paige took the cold 40-ounce beer she'd just purchased in the party store and poured some of it into a cup from a fast food place. Then she put the remainder of the beer back in the bag, top screwed on tight. She put the cutlass in gear and headed north on 275. It's about 2.45 p.m. Now, Paige is probably listening to the radio, and she's likely feeling happy. She's headed to see her sweetheart play softball, and then she'll hang out with friends. There was a long holiday weekend to look forward to. She was excited about her engagement and all the good things coming up in the days, weeks, and months ahead. While driving home, Paige stops at a rest area to use the facilities. There is a witness, a reliable witness, who saw Paige at the rest area. And after Paige disappeared, this woman contacted law enforcement with information. She told them that she saw Paige speaking to a man at the rest stop. This witness would offer a description of that man, and that gave police something to work with. The woman didn't describe their conversation as concerning. Neither party looked upset or agitated. 
So the woman continued about her business and didn't give much thought to what she'd seen until she learned that Paige was missing. Paige did leave the rest area. She did continue her trip home, but she never made it home because something or someone stopped her. Her car, the Oldsmobile Cutlass Calais, is pulled to the shoulder of the freeway. Paige gets out of the vehicle, and Paige stood there on the shoulder of I-96 in her bare feet, with her blonde hair moving in the breeze caused by cars as they whipped past her. Paige left behind her shoes and her purse. She left behind most of the beer she'd been drinking. Paige not only left the keys in the ignition of the vehicle, but she left the car running. Which leaves us wondering why. Why would Paige do that? I turned to her sister, Michelle. You know, I don't have any more information than that. Um, You know, but like you said, she took my mom to the airport, you know, stopped in Canton, stopped at a store, and was on her way back home for her fiance's ball game. Uh, He was on a softball team and, you know, made it back, you know, within you know, 20 miles of, of, you know, her home basically. And, you know, somebody got her to pull over on the side of the freeway, you know, yards, I would say maybe 50, hundred yards right before an exit. Like right. why wouldn't she have pulled off on an exit? Like that was clearly visible. Right. You know, why was it there? I mean, it's such, it's such a mystery and there's so many theories. Um, especially after 30 years. Um, yeah, we, we don't know that. How, uh, how do you get a 30-year-old adult person to, to pull over on the freeway when they could have access to an exit? That's the million-dollar question. It, it completely is, yeah. Listeners, what would make Paige pull a functioning car to the side of the interstate? That's the first question. Why did Paige pull over? The car was working just fine. It was working so well that hours later, when an officer pulled up behind it to tag it as an abandoned vehicle, he found it running. Now, I can't say if he looked inside the car to see a purse and shoes, or if he opened the door and turned off the vehicle, but he did tag it, and he made a note of this in his log. You see, Patron Koski, she's not missing yet. I mean, she is missing, but no one has reported it. Steve is playing softball. He's laughing with his friends and turning to look at the stands. He's scanning the crowd, hoping to catch a glimpse of his fiancée, but Paige doesn't arrive. After the game, there's still no sign of Paige. She doesn't join Steve and friends for a post-game dinner at a local place. There's no message on their answering machine, either. It's 1990, so it's not like he can call and check on her cell phone. Paige just isn't there. Eventually, Steve will place a call. He will place several calls. Has anyone seen Paige? And the answer, time and again, is no. No one has seen her. No one has heard from her. That evening, police are notified and people begin searching for Paige. Her friends, family, and loved ones will paper the Detroit area with, quite literally, thousands of missing persons posters in an attempt to locate Paige. As news of her disappearance makes the papers and the TV news, the calls start coming in. Witnesses saying they saw her car, the Silver Cutlass Calais, on the side of I-96 between 3.15 and 4.30. And the timeline fits. 
Paige left the party store in Canton around 2.40. The drive from the now-defunct store to the area where her car was found just before the Fowlerville exit, that's about 46 miles, which would take about 40 minutes depending on traffic and on how fast Paige was driving. Plus, she made a stop at the rest area. But it's not unrealistic to put her car at that location where it would be found at 3.30. So why did Paige pull over? What made a 30-year-old woman stop her car on the side of the freeway when the exit was nearby? The exit being a much safer choice for her to pull off the road. Well, we can discard the notion that Paige was having car trouble. The Cutlass was in fine working order when it was found. Remember, the vehicle was running when it was discovered by law enforcement that afternoon. So what if someone faked an accident? Could a person in another vehicle have tapped Paige's bumper to get her to pull over and then overpowered her? Well, investigators say that the cutlass appeared undamaged. And another investigator pointed out that the reason for these bump accidents where people are forced to pull over is to get money from the other driver. Paige's purse and wallet were left untouched. And if you're thinking about her bank accounts, Paige was not a wealthy woman. She had some money in her savings account, but her accounts were never accessed. No one ever attempted to obtain any of that money. Could Paige, zipping along with I-96 traffic at speeds of 60 or 70 miles an hour, could she have seen someone that she knew? And they decided to pull off to the side of the road. Remember what her sister said. There was an exit visible from the location where the vehicle was discovered. If you're driving and you see someone you know, would you pull over to chat somewhere safer than the side of a busy freeway? Another theory is that Paige walked away on her own, that she planned her disappearance. And I have to mention this theory, but personally, I don't see it as viable. If Paige was leaving her life, why drive back toward home? At Metro Airport or even in Canton, she's less than an hour from the state line. Why not point the car south and keep going? Or if she wanted to disappear while closer to home, she would have taken her shoes and her purse. Paige, like many women, carried a handbag, and the handbag, it was a lifeline. Your purse is where you keep your money, your makeup, your ID, credit cards, your checkbook and your lip balm and your breath mints. If you're leaving, you're going to take those things with you. And Paige really had no need to escape. She'd just finished college. She was engaged to be married. Her life was good. It was happy. Her life wasn't perfect. Few lives are. But there was nothing for Paige to escape from. Hours before she vanished, Paige told her mother and her friend that she was looking forward to Steve's softball game and the long holiday weekend. This leads us back to Steve, her fiancé. Could he have been involved in what became of Paige? He was at his softball game with friends that afternoon, minutes after Paige went missing. After the game, when Paige was a no-show, he went to her mother's house. Paige's parents had split up in the early 80s. While at the home of artist Renkowski, Steve knocked on the door. He got no answer, so he let himself in, looking for his fiancée. According to a January 12, 1994 story in the Livingston County Daily Press in Argus, what Steve found inside the house was an answering machine with a blinking light telling him there were unplayed messages. 
He listened to the messages he was hoping to hear from Paige. Instead, he heard the Livingston County Sheriff reporting that her car, the 1986 Olds Cutlass, was found on the side of the freeway. Steve drove to the Sheriff's Department and he told them that Paige was driving that car and that she was missing. And listeners, there's a common misconception that police won't do anything unless a person is missing for 24 hours, and that's simply not true. A search was started immediately to locate Paige. And because Steve was her fiancé, the man in her life, that makes him a person of interest in her disappearance, so I again turned to Michelle and asked her thoughts on Steve and the possibility of his involvement in the case. Was it Steve who raised the alarm that she was missing? He had called to talk to my mom, you know, and had asked basically what she had done because he was waiting for her to, you know, be at the ball game or home at some point in the afternoon. And she wasn't several hours go by and she did. Yeah, she didn't show up at home. She didn't show up at the softball game. And that's when I think the red lights went off, possibly for him. Yeah. Oh, Steve. Steve was cleared. He was cleared several times over the years. Um, He was not questioned once or twice. He was questioned many different times over the years. And so he was cleared. There was never any, you know, anything at all that showed that he was involved. Um, You know, I did not know him well. Again, I had lived away for many years and didn't know him personally. Yeah, he was cleared with law enforcement and questioning him. Okay, that's helpful because people will well, what about her boyfriend? Yeah, well, that's absolutely. Yeah, yeah. what about that? You know, and, you know, it's still something, whether it's, it was random, you know, a random freak thing, uh, wrong place at the wrong time, or was it somebody she knew? You right. Know, we don't know those answers. I'm comfortable crossing Steve off the suspect list. As Michelle said, he wasn't just looked at and cleared once. He was checked out several times over the years, and Steve still lives and works in Michigan, and he is still in contact with Paige's family. So when we look at the tips and the leads that were called into investigators, we need to talk about a vehicle that comes up time and again, a minivan, and not just any minivan. It's a minivan that's described as burgundy or dark red. When we try to narrow down what kind of minivan it was, We need to consider that the first iteration of commercially successful minivans originated with the Dodge Caravan and Plymouth Voyager in 1984. General Motors and Ford quickly followed with their own minivans, the Chevrolet Astro, the GMC Safari, and the Ford Aerostar. Don't forget there were other minivan options from Japanese brands like the Mazda MPV and the Toyota Van, among others. In the Detroit area, the minivan seen near Paige in her vehicle was likely made by one of the big three. But we cannot eliminate the possibility that the vehicle was an import. When police looked up dark red Mazda vans trying to narrow down the suspect list, they learned that there were more of a hundred of them registered in the state of Michigan. We've got six years of minivans across four or five different manufacturers. So trying to narrow down the field by a vehicle description was a time-consuming and ultimately frustrating process. And now I want to talk about the last theory in the case, a theory that is built around eyewitness testimony. And before we talk about this theory, I want to go back to Paige's father, Carl Renkoski. 
Page was raised by a man who worked in law enforcement for more than a decade, a man who served as a military policeman in the 1950s and later as a police officer for the Michigan State University Police Service. Page and her sisters were raised to be respectful children, and that included being respectful to people in positions of authority. So what if someone pulled up alongside of her on I-96 and showed her a badge? and then pointed for her to pull over. It's possible that she followed the instructions of this unknown person or persons with the badge, never imagining that they were an imposter. So when Paige pulls her vehicle to the side of the freeway, the other vehicle also pulls over. Now, we have a couple different eyewitness accounts of this scenario. Did the vehicle, possibly a burgundy minivan, pull in behind Paige? Was the van occupied by more than one person? Was the driver of this vehicle black or Latino? We're pretty sure it was a male. One scenario has the vehicle stopped in front of Paige and the man with the badge walking toward her car with his arm outstretched, his elbow is bent, and his palm is forward. And if you're trying to picture this, imagine you're holding up your hand in a gesture for someone to stop, and then imagine that you're holding a badge in the palm of that hand. This is the description given to investigators by an off-duty member of law enforcement, someone who passed what he believes was Paige and the person or persons responsible for her abduction. This witness, who was a member of law enforcement, he was traveling the other direction, and he saw them for just a moment as he passed by. But because he was in law enforcement, the stance of the man jumped out at him, because what he saw was someone showing Paige a badge. Another eyewitness account will describe a dark-skinned man, likely black but possible of Latino descent, speaking with Paige near her car on the side of the freeway. Then this man takes Paige by the elbow, leading her away from her car. And remember, the people that are offering these sightings, these witnesses, they are reporting something that they saw for a few seconds as they passed by at 60 or 70 miles an hour. But I want to get back to that badge because the use of a badge to get Paige to comply could mean that the person who kidnapped her is connected to or formerly connected to law enforcement. This could also be someone who obtained a badge or a reasonable imitation of a badge and used it to pass themselves off as an officer. And this phenomenon, fake police, it's not uncommon, and we'll come back to that in a minute. The idea that someone used a badge and presented themselves as a police officer, this is the theory I favor when thinking about what happened that day, why Paige cooperated and pulled to the shoulder of the freeway. I asked her sister about this. The other thing that I, I definitely want to talk about, because in, and in part, because I will admit, it's my, you know, the theory that I favor is that somebody mm-hmm. badged her and got her to pull over. Correct. I'm, that is my top theory. Um, because there were rumors on the news or in the paper. I don't even remember exactly where. But during that time period, maybe a year or two, whether it was prior to her missing or after, that there were reports of someone in, you know, I don't know, a 60-mile radius that had been badging, you know, flashing a badge and getting people to pull over. You know, I don't recall exactly when or where that was, but that was topic of conversation uh, as a possibility. 
No. Which would make more sense. If someone was passing himself off as a police officer, it's possible Paige pulled over thinking she was following the law. And by the time she realized that the person who flashed the badge had misrepresented themselves, she couldn't get out of the situation. And listeners, I'm still wondering why she left her shoes and purse behind in her vehicle. And why not turn off the car? Did he show her a weapon in addition to the badge? Maybe a gun tucked into his waistband? Did he tell her something? Words shouted over the hum of traffic whizzing by that made her follow his instructions without hesitation. And if you're thinking that people masquerading as law enforcement doesn't happen that often, there was a high-profile case of this in the Detroit area in February of this year, just three months ago, when Oakland County Sheriff Mike Bouchard was on his way home from work and spotted a vehicle. A dark Ford Explorer with a police interceptor label on the back, call 911 on the rear quarter panel, and emergency response, along with a badge outline on the driver's door. Bouchard activated the lights on his vehicle, pulled the driver over, and as he walked up on the vehicle, the driver put down his window and said, Who are you? Bouchard responded, I'm the sheriff. Who are you? A search of the vehicle turned up a semi-automatic handgun and a large sheathed Bowie knife, as well as a fake police computer mounted on the dash, a fake radar setup, and a set of flashing lights. Illegal equipment for a personal vehicle. As of this writing, the man pulled over by Bouchard, 23-year-old Adrian Ansa Asante of Waterford, is awaiting trial. As I look through Paige's case the little that we know, and all of the questions that we're left with. I think the theory that Paige was approached by someone impersonating an officer and then lured from her vehicle under false pretenses, I think this is the most likely reason for her disappearance. When you look back at her case across three decades, 30 years, you realize that we don't know much more now than we did in the days after she vanished. Police have interviewed men they referred to as suspects. Specifically, in 2002, investigators spoke with a man who was serving time in prison. And this wasn't the first time he talked to investigators about her case. He had a lot to say, including a discussion of possible involvement of himself and some of his, shall we say, associates in her disappearance. One of those associates was a minor, someone who was only 17 in May of 1990. This suspect mentioned two other men, men that law enforcement showed an interest in, but these men have since died. One was a victim of gun violence, the other died while serving an unrelated prison sentence. All four of these men have criminal records and ties to illegal activities in Detroit and the metro area. And the location where Paige was abducted, the side of I-96 near Fowlerville, that's about two-thirds of the way between Detroit and Lansing. So if you were transporting illicit items, say drugs, between the two cities, this is the route you would take. And it's possible that this man, along with some of his associates, saw Paige, an attractive blonde woman driving alone, and flashed a badge at her, perhaps pointing to a problem with her vehicle. Maybe they told her she had a tire going down. So Paige pulled her car to the side of the road and hopped out to check the condition of the tire. While Paige was standing barefoot beside her car, he showed the badge and placed a hand on her arm. As one of the witnesses told investigators, he took her by the elbow and led Paige back to his own vehicle. 
perhaps the burgundy or maroon minivan seen by witnesses. What happened next? Well, we can't say, but I imagine it was nothing good, nothing you'd want to reflect on for very long. Paige was taken, and then she was gone. We also need to acknowledge that Livingston County, where Paige was last seen, is known for clan activity going back to the earliest part of the 20th century. By 1990, most of the clan was gone, but the racial tensions remained. The idea of a van full of black or Latino men who had kidnapped a white woman and then drove around with her on the back roads of Livingston County, well, that's a risk most would not take. Then again, these are men willing to pass themselves off as law enforcement. These are men with long criminal records, men who have served time in prison, and, in one case, men who died because of gun violence. Where would this group of men have taken Paige? Where could they have safely disposed of her remains? During the summer of 1990, law enforcement followed up on tips and leads as they came in. Cadaver dogs were used to search areas and digs were performed, but there was nothing. No evidence, no clues, and no sign of Paige. At the time of her disappearance, Paige Ronkowski, who was born in February of 1960, was 30 years old. She stood 5 foot 7 inches tall, with shoulder-length blonde hair and blue eyes. Paige had a surgical scar on her right arm, and her right knee was replaced years before she went missing. There are two surgical screws in her left knee. When I asked her family about the condition of her knees, Apparently, when Paige was in high school, she was goofing around on her kid sister's skateboard and took a bad fall, severely injuring her legs. These distinctive injuries and corrections would make it easier for her remains to be identified should she be recovered. In the weeks following Paige's disappearance, her father, Carl, suffered a medical emergency and was hospitalized for several days. He did recover and spoke to the Detroit Free Press on the one-year anniversary of her disappearance. Carl Rinkowski was looking for answers. His health continued to deteriorate, and he fell ill and would pass away in 1994 at age 61, never learning what became of his daughter. Paige's mother, Artis, she worked on behalf of not only Paige, but other families and victims for the next 20 years. If you would like to read her entire obituary, you can find it posted on her Find a Grave entry. But just to give you some highlights, Artis volunteered with the parents of murdered children. She helped form the Missing in Michigan organization in 2010. She created the Cold Case page for Missing in Michigan, and the Cold Case page is one that I now manage for Missing in Michigan, in addition to our missing persons group. Artis also worked closely with the University of North Texas and the NamUs program. In 2015, Artis was given the honor of being named the first Michigan State Police Missing in Michigan Advocate of the Year Award, an award that has subsequently been named the Artis Renkowski Advocate of the Year Award. The list of her good works goes on and on. I had the pleasure of meeting Artis at the 2017 Missing in Michigan event at Madonna University, and I was able to thank her for her efforts on behalf of families everywhere. Families who need an advocate like artists to speak out for those who cannot. In the summer of 2017, Artis was involved in an accident where she suffered serious injuries. In December of 2017, Artis passed away. She was 84 years old. 
In the years since her death, Artis's granddaughter, Nikki, has shown an interest in following in the footsteps of her grandmother. Nikki is pursuing a career in criminal justice. Right, right. And it's kind of, I mean, become me in a way because since my mom started telling me about Paige's case and everything, I just was very, very interested into it. And that's why I, I am leaning towards criminal justice. I'm about to graduate with my criminal justice degree. And that has always been my purpose. And the reason why I'm going into this field is because of Paige, actually. That's pretty awesome. Do you want to be a police officer or what is what are your goals? I have gone back and forth over many years. I mean, probably about 10 years or so I've been planning on going into this field. And I started off wanting to be a police officer. And then I just kind of set my goals higher and higher each time. I've thought about the FBI. I've looked into uh, intelligence. I've considered a lot of different things. But what's most important for me is to figure out how I can apply my experience, even though I never met Paige, but how I can apply my experience to help other people that have gone through the same thing or are going through it. So whether it's working with missing persons or something along those lines, that's where my goals are pointed at. In addition to her coursework and seeking a career in law enforcement, Nikki shared an important point about living in a family where there is a missing person. And she told me about Paige's policy. Yeah, there is one thing. So I wrote a paper last year and I named it Paige's Policy, and it's basically analyzing the procedure for missing persons cases. But I included a quote in here, and I just want to read it because I thought it was a good way to explain what the families go through. So it was a quote from Pauline Boss, who is a professor and marital and family therapist at the University of Minnesota, and she coined the term ambiguous loss. Basically, it's what we go through as a family with an unknown. So she said, to describe what happens when people are missing, either physically or emotionally, that's what this term is for. When a missing child is found dead, hopefulness ends, but so does a period of ambiguity about the child's fate. The loss is resolved and becomes absolute. So basically, if you find your missing loved one, with whatever might have happened to them, hopefulness ends. You're not still hoping right. that, you know, you have answers. So 30 years later, there's, there's still that hope because you don't have, you don't have any answers. So I just thought that was an interesting one. Ambiguous loss is a very powerful term. And I think it's something that people who follow true crime, particularly missing persons cases, they should be aware of that term and understand not just what it means, but what it means for families to sort of be stuck in that purgatory where you, you just yeah, don't know. The the continuous preoccupation of like what the circumstances were, what the person went through, like you go through an array of emotions and you know, for some people, that ends when they when they find out what happens. The friends and family of Paige Renkowski are still hoping for answers in her case. If you have information on her disappearance, 
Even if you have spoken with law enforcement previously, please make the call. Her case is currently being handled by Deputy Investigator Bob Getchman of the Livingston County Sheriff's Office. You can reach the deputy at 517-546-8477 or 517-540-7880. Remember, listeners, this case is 30 years old and it's been handled by multiple investigators. So if you have information, please call. You can find these numbers along with an email address in the show notes. If you want to support the show, please take the time to leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher. Reviews help other listeners find the show and the cases discussed here. And one more bit of news before we wrap up. With all the stress we've been facing due to the pandemic, I have relaunched Dreaming with Nina, a bi-weekly sleepcast where I share stories from various writers, or tales from Michigan, and even my own history to give you a pleasant, soothing place to fall asleep. You can find Dreaming with Nina on your favorite podcatcher. Episode 4, Residential, just came out this week. Special thanks this week to Gray Multimedia for editing and music. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please... Be safe.